Well, let's start off. Let's talk about something really fun. Let's talk about tax day. Is there anything worse? I mean, can we be honest? All right, let's see a show of hands. How many of you love to pay taxes? All right. I see a kid's raising their hands. <laughs> Just wait. So you think about it. Um, taxes get us all sorts of ways, don't they? Right? You decide you want to hire someone. You're going to pay a payroll tax to hire that person. You get a job. Awesome. Except for you pay income tax to the feds. Income tax to the states. And in some really swell counties, income tax to the county. You're like, all right, I'm just going to take the money I have and make more money with it. Ha <laughs> ha. Capital gains tax. I'm going to buy property, right? They can't do anything with that. Nope. Property tax. Like, okay, I'm just going to buy some gas or some airline tickets. No, there's taxes on that. Maybe you want to like, okay, fine. You know what? I'm just going to buy something not good for me. I'm going to buy some tobacco, some alcohol, some drugs. Yes, even candy and soft drinks. They tax those too. Those are called sin taxes, S-I-N, right? Even gambling is taxed. So you're like, okay, fine. I'm just going to get me some bling. I'm going to get me some jewelry. I'm going to buy a boat. I'm going to buy a, a, a plane. Well, there's a thing called luxury tax. You're like, fine. Okay, you know what? I'm just not going to pay any taxes. I'm just going to die and leave it to my kids. Oh, man. They get you in death too, don't they? There's a thing called an estate tax. So here's the thing. All of these taxes have something in common that I want to point out to you today. And that thing is no one wants to pay them. Amen? People don't volunteer and go, you know what? I just would love to give the government more of my money. I would really like to see what they could do with more of my money and figure out new ways to waste it. Even if it's a good cause, right? I mean, isn't that the way taxes are sold to us? Hey, don't worry about it. It's only five cents on every purchase, and it goes to roads that somehow they overspend on and then taxes for later. So today, we are looking at an event in Jesus' life around a tax. Now, before you all get worried, this sermon, this passage is not telling us how and when we should pay taxes to the government. We don't have to do that. Nor is this passage about submission to the government, whether we like what they're doing or not. It's not what this is about. Instead, this has a whole nother purpose to it. So the first thing we must ask is, is why is this included? Matthew's the only gospel writer to include this story. So there's something there. Could be that Matthew is a tax collector, and he's thinking, oh, this is a good one. I like this. Maybe Matthew... You know, remember he was wealthy, maybe he's thinking, man, I like shiny things, just like the fish, like the shiny thing. But I think there's more to it than that. Remember, Matthew is weaving this tapestry for us of Jesus' life. He's picking things from Jesus' life to teach us a big story about who Jesus is. Remember John 20, verse 25, 21, verse 25, says that there are so many things that Jesus did, that all the books in the world could not contain them. And so Matthew has cherry-picked the ones that fit with the story he wants us to know, the thing he wants us to know. And it's not about paying taxes. So Matthew's point here is that we are adopted children of the king. And because of Christ's payment, we are free. And there's a freedom that we have that is better than anything any of our governments can give. 
We don't need to pay the price for our sins. We don't need to pay it because like we just sang, Jesus paid it all. So this tax that we're going to look at today, God doesn't tax his children, but he does provide for them so they can pay the tax. So we're going to spend some time looking at that. So a unique story to Matthew. So we got to try to, again, what does this mean? Where have we been? Jesus has come down off the Mount of Transfiguration. Just last week, he announced that he was going to die and that his, his death was going to pay for our sins. So he is this sacrificial lamb. And then this story happens. I think to understand kind of the bigger picture of it all, we need to recognize that the Bible tells this vast story that can be summed up in two words. And that is the word grace and the word gratitude. If you were to look through the entire Bible, starting in Genesis and going all the way through to Revelation, this picture of grace, this idea of not getting what we deserve, this mercy, salvation, forgiveness, eternal life, Holy Spirit, God in communion with us is all grace. We've done nothing to deserve it. In fact, we've done everything we can to push it away and have nothing to do with it. And then we have gratitude. And the Bible's very clear about this. It says, you need to respond to God correctly. Gratitude, thankfulness, not obligation, not guilt, not shame, but gratitude. Look at this amazing grace that we sing about, that we talk about. It's so amazing, my response should be gratitude. Now, the thing about it is, if we get these two words out of place, like if we just go right to the gratitude part and we don't understand the grace, this is where a lot of people misunderstand the Bible. They misunderstand what it means to be a Christian. Because they go, the Bible says I should be grateful. The Bible says I should be thankful. That sure sounds like an obligation. That sounds like a law. I don't feel it. I don't want to feel it. I don't know why I should be feeling it. So therefore, it's just another rule to follow. Christianity is a bunch of rules, just like every other religion. Only if you miss the grace. And then the gratitude part, let's say we get the grace. We understand that we have been pardoned of an incredible amount. But then we go, I don't feel any gratitude. I don't feel any thankfulness. See, if we get that out of order, too, we need to understand that our, our grace should be over, that when we understand grace, it overflows in us that we just can't help but have gratitude. We can't make gratitude or grace into new law. This gratitude is proof that we know the Lord. It's proof that we understand the grace. So in this passage today, we're going to see that there are two questions asked, two answers given, and then Jesus steps in and teaches. And he teaches through a fish. So let's look at the first, first question, starting in verse 24. And when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. Now, first off, Capernaum is in the north of Galilee. It's kind of home base for Jesus. Um, it's where he's done a lot of his ministry. He's now on his way back through these places, going to Jerusalem. The tax collectors, this, this word collector means one who seizes. I like that, a Caesar instead of a collector. They seize the money. The two drachma tax, 
Two drachmas are half a shekel, all right? So later on when he gets the shekel out of the fish, a full shekel would pay four drachmas. It's just the money of the time. Understand it this way, a drachma is about two days' wages, give or take. So Peter gets asked by these collectors, does your teacher not pay the tax? Peter goes, yes. Now, I think there might need to be a question mark there. Yes? Because here's the thing, how do you answer that question? Does your teacher not, so now it's negative, pay the tax? This is like one of those complex questions where you don't really know how to answer, right? When did you stop beating your dog? Yesterday? Oh, so you did beat your dog. Oh, no, no, never. Oh, so you're still beating your dog called a complex question. It's a philosophical tool. It's an argumentative tool to get someone to answer, and then you can use it against them. Politicians do it all the time. So here, it's really unclear. Is it, does Jesus pay the tax? Yes. Does Jesus not pay the tax? Yes. Does Jesus not not pay the tax? Okay. Don't know. So Peter's kind of stuck here. Peter doesn't really know how to answer. And it's understandable. This tax that's being laid here is not a governmental tax. It's a religious tax. It's a tax called the temple tax. It's one of the four things that all good Jews would do. They'd pay the temple tax, which was a yearly tax. Usually they'd pay it at Passover when they're in town and they're right there by the temple. They're like, oh, might as well pay, I'm here. Well, they found out, the the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the other priests found out some people didn't come for the Passover. So they're like, oh, we'll bring the tax people to you. Awesome. So the tax people are now traveling around going, have you paid? Have you paid? Have you paid? The second thing that good Jews would do is they'd take a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Then they'd also worship on on the Sabbath in synagogues. And finally, they'd celebrate the feasts. So this is really where Jesus finds himself. Peter has been kind of uh, singled out because he's one of the leaders of the disciples. Jesus is nearby, but they go to Peter instead. And I'm I'm wondering, what are they expecting Jesus to do here? What would our response probably be if we were thinking, what would Jesus do in this situation? Well, so far, every time something's come up, Jesus has been the opposite of it. Pharisees are like, wash your hands. Jesus goes, nope. All right, "Do do you do this? Nope. How about that? Nope. And it looks like Jesus is just like total contrarian, right? Here's what everybody thinks I should say. I'm gonna say the opposite. Or, you guys are for this, I'm going to be against it, right? Well, that's not what Jesus is doing here. And I want to show you why, because this tax is very, very interesting. See, Jesus is not operating on the principle, whatever you all are doing is bad, and I'm going to do the opposite. Jesus is operating on the principle, if it's in God's word, I'm for it. If it's an expansion and a, and a strict, making something more strict from God's word, then I'm against it. And so every time Jesus has been against something, it's because they've said, here's what the Bible says. Oh, but we're going to make it that much tougher. We're going to lose the point of it. And so here, Jesus wants to get right back to the point. It's really clear. His principle is this. If God's word says it, I obey it. That's Jesus's life. If man's word says it and it's not contradicting to God's word, then I'm going to believe it. But if it's contradictory, I'm not doing it. So this is not about whether Christians should pay taxes. Instead, this is a lesson for Peter and for us about what it means to be free. So let's look at the, where this passage came from. So you can see it on the, on the screen here or flip over to Exodus chapter 30. 
And one of the things that's the coolest things about it is, so as I began studying this temple tax, right? So I read it like many of you have this week, preparing for the sermon. I read through and it said two drachma tax. And I looked in my study Bible and it said temple tax. And I'm like, oh, cool, right? And it was kind of some interesting stuff there. And I was like, all right, how are we going to talk about taxes? I really don't want to do that. That doesn't sound like fun. So then I was like, wait a second. There's, there's another little, little letter there. And that little letter tells me that there's a, a cross-reference. I was like, well, well, I'll look the cross-reference up. Because here's the thing. The best commentary on the Bible is what? The Bible. And so I looked at Exodus 30, and I, I mean, I found it. This is a gem. I don't know how many times you all have read Exodus, but I've read this, and I never caught it before. So let me see if I can show you guys. Exodus 30, 11 through 16. And the Lord said to Moses, when you take the census of the people of Israel... Then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them. There will be that there will be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, a half shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, a shekel is 20 giras. Half a shekel is an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more, the poor shall not give less than the half shekel. When you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for their lives. You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting, that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord, so as to make atonement for their lives. I was just blown away. What does it say? It says that this is an atonement. This is for their lives. It's a ransom. Like this is the entry fee to be able to do anything in the temple. I had never caught that before. I mean, I knew that everybody had to, had to bring sacrifices and there was a yearly sacrifice, but there actually was a tax to go visit the temple. And it turned out originally it was a census tax, so about every 10 to 15 years, and then eventually it became every year. So this was what they had to pay to be able to enter the temple, which is where they were made right with God. So this is the first step of their being made right with God, paying a tax, paying a half shekel. And you look at that and you go, okay, words, atonement, what, is, what does that even mean? The word atonement means to be forgiven. It, it means your, your sins are washed away. So this is the first step of having their sins washed away. And it was expected that they would pay it each and every year. This is a reminder to Israel that they're estranged from God, that they're aliens, they're foreigners. And only if they pay are they allowed to come into God's presence. Note, too, it says that the rich can't give more and the poor can't give less. Everybody's equally sinful in God's eyes. So the price had to be paid to enter. A reminder of Israel's status, that they were aliens. They were not a part of God's family. Spurgeon writes this about atonement. He says, the heart of Christ became a reservoir in the midst of the mountains, all the tributary streams of iniquity and every drop of sin of his people ran down and gathered into him the one vast lake, deep as hell and shoreless as eternity. And all these met, as it were, in Christ's heart, and he endured them all. This atonement is the paying of the price for our sins. And so the first step here is you have to pay the temple tax. And so, again, atonement. Atonement and grace go side by side. Because atonement is paying the price for your sins. And even the Old Testament saints and New Testament, as they were looking back at the Old Testament, recognized that payment of a temple tax, 
The killing of animals in the temple doesn't actually take away sins. That only God's grace could do that. And we know it's pointing forward to Christ. So this atonement and grace go side by side. So the first thing we see is Jesus is asked, or Peter is asked, does Jesus pay the atonement price? And the answer is absolutely he does. Just not the way you expect it, tax collectors. So let's look at the second question. Verse 25, and when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first. I want to pause right there for a sec. Notice the omniscience of Jesus. Jesus is elsewhere. He's a ways away. And he recounts to Peter as if he was just there with this conversation. We've seen this before. Remember in John 1, when he's talking to Philip, I saw you. Later, Jesus is going to say, hey, there's a fish over there with some, with some, with some gold in it. You're going to get the one you need, Right? See, we need to not miss the fact that Jesus is claiming deity all throughout this. When he says, I am the son and I am the son of the king, he's saying, I am God's son, which means I am God. Jesus is powerful. Don't miss his deity in this. And when they came into the house, Jesus spoke to him saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take their toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, from others, Jesus said, then the sons are free. So this is an interesting little kind of exchange here. Jesus is asking Peter a question, and actually Peter gets it right, which is good. He says, do you get it from sons or from others? That word other means foreigners or aliens or people who've been conquered. And so he's saying, who, who does the king tax? Does the king go, hey, we need to raise some funds. You know, I know this really rich kid. He's my son over here. I'm gonna tax him, right? Now, why, why would the king not do that? Well, where did the son get all of his money from? From dad, right? Son didn't do anything. He just was born to the royal family. That's all he did. So this royal family is not going to be taxed. Now, up until about 20 years ago, no royal family had ever been taxed. That was until the Queen of England agreed to be taxed a few years ago. The, the English people were upset about the tax rates, and they said, that's not fair that they don't have to pay taxes to themselves. So they made them pay taxes to themselves. I'm not sure how exactly that works, but the Queen of England was willing to do that. When he says, the sons are free, that word free means non-slave. It means the opposite of slave. And Jesus is saying, the sons are free. I am the one that freed them. I am the one that has this relationship with God. Now, in the Old Testament, Israel is called the sons of God. Now, let's make sure everybody understands when I say sons, I'm talking about sons and daughters, okay? So let's not get hung up on the language there. The children of God in the Old Testament, Exodus 4, 22 says that. It says that they're the children of God. So what is Jesus saying? That there's some that are children and some that are not. Well, see, yes, we're all children of God. God has made every single one of us. But then there's those who are his children, his heirs. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying, there's a group that knows me and I know them, and those are my people, and those are the ones who are receiving the inheritance. And this is what Peter finds himself in. These are the sons that are free. So how does one become one of these sons? How, how do you do it, right? I mean, you, nobody chooses who they're born to. They're just born that way except for when it comes to our relationship with the Lord. So let's look at what the Bible says about it. Galatians 3 tells us, but now that faith has come, you are no longer under a guardian. 
For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're Christ, then you're Abraham's offsprings, heirs according to the promise. So Paul's saying, if you want to be an heir, it's through Christ's life, death, and resurrection. He's the one that brings you in. He adds you to the family. See, we're all adopted children of God if we have faith in Christ. John 1, 11 tells us even more. He says, he, that's Jesus, came to his own people and his own people did not recognize him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. See, God is the one that brings about the new life in us. God is the one that makes us into the children of God. And Ephesians 2.19 even gets it more clear. He says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, that's that word other, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And I, there's, there's plenty more. I got two more I want to hit as well. Galatians 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem. That's that word ransom like we saw in the Exodus passage. Those who were under the law so that he might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. 1 John 3, 1, see what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet, been, not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. So this, how do we become a son, is we line up under Christ. We, 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 we grab onto Christ for all we're worth. We have faith in Christ, and that is what makes us children of God, because Jesus paid it all. Just like we sang, he's paid it all, we are now a part of the family, we get the royal birthright. We get all the privileges of being royal. Prince and princesses just win the genetic lottery, that's all they do. They did nothing to earn it, they were given it by the fact they were born into a certain family. No one can earn it. No one can lose it. You're a part of the family. So we're not strangers. We're not enemies. We are sons and daughters of the king if we are in Christ. Jesus has paid it all. His suffering and his death and his resurrection, which is future for Peter, but is in the past for us, has paid the ransom. He's paid the debt. The true son of the king is Jesus, and we are all adopted in. So we have a debt we cannot pay, a Savior who's paid it, even though we're rebelling against him. Now Jesus comes in and wants to teach us another lesson. Look at verse 27. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. When you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. So it says not to give offense to them. Who's the them? Well, we don't even know it could be, the, could be the tax collectors, it could be the Pharisees, it could be the, the people hanging around, we don't know. We don't even know what the offense is. We know Jesus is saying, I don't want to put up a wall or a stumbling block. So I don't think that's what Ma Matthew's really getting at. I think Matthew's getting at something else here. And it starts with the cast a hook 
into the sea. Interesting. There's no record of any hook fishing done by the men in Galilee. They fished with nets. Peter fished with nets. But here, Jesus, to again show off that he is God, says, yeah, you guys normally fish with nets, and you'll bring in, like, what, 127 fish, right? And one of them's going to have a gold coin in it. They'd be like, oh, pretty lucky. That happens every once in a while. But instead, he says, take a hook. Peter's going, what's a hook? Throw it in the water and reel it on in, and the fish that you bring in is going to have the exact amount that is needed. I love that. I love that. One hook, one fish, one gold coin, all right there. So what does this tell us? This tells us that this freedom that we have frees us to give. It frees us to serve. It frees us to care for others. The obligation has been removed. We can freely and generously give. See, we're freed from paying the tax so that we can pay the tax. We are free to love. Now, one of the things when we look at that passage, you put it back up there for me, Andy. Would you do that for me? When we look at that passage, um, actually, we've got to go back even farther, but never mind. Just leave it where it's at. When it says, however, freed, however, not given offense, there, that, that, there's, a, there's a weird wording there. Really what it says is it says, free not to give offense, however. That's the way that that's worded. So the freedom is not do what you want, however, let's also not give offense. That's not what this says. This is saying, you've been freed, so let's not give offense. There's no break there. We are to be free to serve. We are to be free to not make others stumble. We are to be free because of this gratitude then to give and do whatever is in front of us. But honestly, okay, so you're saying, Pastor John, you're saying we are freed from paying the tax, now go pay the tax. That just kind of seems like a semantic wordplay, doesn't it? Like, you're free, and here's your freedom. Like, that's what our world does right now, doesn't it? Like, it takes a word that we all know the definition to, and then it changes the definition mid-sentence, right? It's called equivocation, where you change the word halfway through. I'm not doing that here. You are 100% free from the tax. You're free to not pay the tax. But when gratitude wells up in you, that's when the freedom will maybe be that you're paying that tax. Maybe be that you are going to do whatever it is. Now, this is bad news, right? If I have to go, okay, I have a tax that I have to pay. I have a, a thing that I must do, and I have to do it. Dang it, I don't, I don't want to do it. How am I supposed to do it? I can't figure it out. And then this is why I think Matthew included this last verse. Because where does the payment of the tax come from? It comes from God himself. J.C. Ryle says, God ma Jesus makes a fish his paymaster. He makes a voiceless creature bring the tribute money to meet the collector's demands. Literally, he's fulfilling Psalm 8, verse 6. You have been given dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under your feet, all the sheep, all the ox, all the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and yes, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the deep. And Jesus could have brought this as just as easily from a bird or from a sheep or from anything he wanted, but he says, I'm going to show you that I will provide for you. See, this is really where the heart of this passage is. 
The heart of this passage isn't, hey, you all have to pay. Hey, you're all free, now go pay. It's God's going to provide. God is going to give the funds. God's going to give the means. He is the one that provides. Because why? Because you have been adopted into the royal family. The prince doesn't have anything of his own. It's all the king's. And if honestly, when I check, keep going back, it keeps going farther and farther back. It doesn't belong to the king even. It belongs to the royal family, the heritage. And that's what we get as well. Colossians 1.16 brings this out. For by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things. And in him, all things hold together. See, God is, God is going to meet our needs. God cares for his children. So we must trust him. This is what verse 27 is about. Because Peter's going, we, wait, we have to pay this tax? I don't have it. Jesus goes, don't worry, Peter. Don't worry. I got you. I will provide what you need. You know, Jesus has this carefree attitude towards money and wealth. He tells us not to worry about money, clothing, food, shelter. We're not supposed to be anxious. We've seen this before. Look at the birds. Look at the the fields. Father takes care of them. So we're not supposed to draw battle lines around money, are we? And this is a part of this fishing expedition that Peter is witnessing. It answers questions. Jesus, we're supposed to pay money we don't owe? Yep. But won't that leave us bankrupt? Don't worry about it. Don't you remember what I taught you on the Sermon on the Mount? Remember that whole cloak thing? Someone asks you for your cloak and give it to them? Okay, I guess it's naked day. Jesus says, you need to not worry about the things of this world. I will meet you. I will meet your needs. Peter is defrauded, right? He still has needs, but the father goes, I'm going to make a fish cough up the money for you. At the heart of Jesus' answer is his willingness to give up his rights and say, I am going to provide for you. Missionary Hudson Taylor, a missionary to China, said, depend on it. God's work is done in God's way will never lack God's supply. He's too wise a God to frustrate his purposes for lack of funds. He can just and easily supply it ahead of time as afterwards, and he'll do it whichever way he sees fit. The old uh, Puritans had a word for this. It's called providence. This is where God is guiding your path and God is showing where you're to go and he's going to provide all that you need. He will fulfill all of the needs you have to do the duty that he's asked you to do as his son and daughter. So now what does this look like? Look at this passage today. I've told you several times. It's not about tax. And honestly, there's nothing that compares to this in our world, is there? I mean, we don't, we don't send out a W, you know, a whatever to you each year and say, okay, your taxes are due to the church. We don't do that, right? But we do have something comparable. We have a tithe. A tithe is this biblical concept of a 10%. Now, here's where this gets kind of weird, right? We go, wait a sec, I, I didn't sign up for a 10% tax. You know, how, you, know, you, have, you know how you get taxed here in America? Just by being here, Right? It's not the way it works in God's church. As a matter of fact, we start looking at the 10% and we go, now, mm, Pastor John, is this 
gross or net? Is this before government takes it or after government takes it? And then, you know, I get paid a lot at my job hourly. So if I volunteer time at the church, does that take it off the top of my 10%? And how does this all work together then? Can I just say that there's, thinking there's a law that we have to give 10%, that's wrong. It's nearly sinfully wrong. Because that's not what the New Testament teaches. Now, for some of you, you're going to go, wait a sec, but I've heard this before. And I think that there's a well-meaning, yes, a 10% is a good model. And if that's what works for you, if that's how you're going to start it, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible does not teach it. Now, don't get me wrong. If you give your 10%, even with bad motives, our church is going to use it to further the kingdom. But that's not the point of what it means to be generous and to give. Remember, 2 Corinthians 9 Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So right there, it's not a tax. It's not a law. If I have to stand up here and say, shame on you, you haven't given your 10%, that's under compulsion. That's reluctant. That's not the biblical model. Verse 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So this is not a tithing sermon. This is not a guilt trip sermon. You all give very, very well, both of your time and your treasure. And we are doing just fine. However, could there be more? Sure. But I'm not worried about that. Because the same God that provides the coin in the fish is going to take care of this church until he's ready for this church not to be here anymore. But what I am concerned about is where are our hearts? How are we viewing our things? How are we viewing our stuff? See, the point of this passage is that it's a radically changed view of the world. See, our hearts are in the wrong place. We want to do the right thing. We want to give the money. We feel the pinch and we go, oh, this is such a sacrifice. And that is what we feel. But is it right to feel that? Or should we feel something different about it? I want to tell you a story that Spurgeon told. I'll try to do it justice. A man decides he's going to send his assistant to go pay a bill. So he gives him $100. The assistant walks in to pay the bill and gives the $100 to the person who he's given the money to. And the, and the assistant goes, oh, it was such a sacrifice to give you that $100. And the person getting the money goes, what are you talking about? That's not even your money. You're giving it for somebody else. See, this is where we need to understand. And this is what Spurgeon writes. I gave up all when I came to God. I became his steward and was no longer the head of my firm. Instead, I made God the head of the firm. Now when I distribute my wealth, I only distribute it as a trustee. It is no sacrifice at all because it's not mine, it is his. When we talk of sacrifices, we miss the point and we make a mistake. Okay, so Spurgeon says it, but let's see what the Bible has to say. 1 Corinthians 10. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord, giving thanks to God, the Father through him. 
little farther on in Colossians 3. Whatever you do, work heartily for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord. 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, whom you have with you? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. See, there's the thing. Everything we have from the life that we are doing right now, all the breaths that we're breathing in, every single part of us is a gift from God on loan to him. We are trustees. That's a, that's a concept where it's not my money, but I'm, I'm taking charge of it for someone else. Our lives are in a trusteeship from God. Our lives are his. Our talents are his. You're going, I got all sorts of weird talents. I don't know how to use them for God's glory. Just use them for God's glory. Ask for help. Figure out how to do it. I have this money. I've worked so hard to get here. Yeah, but whose body have you been making that money with? Whose mind have you been using to make that money with? Whose is it? It's the Lord's. See, I'm not worried about whether you guys tithe 10%. What I'm worried about is, are you seeing the world rightly? Are you seeing that everything we are is the Lord's and it is on loan from him until the roll is called up yonder? Then we go home. So this is, this is the point of today. See, here's the thing. The grace has given us membership into the family. It's not something we've earned. It's free. It's all his. Like it says in Psalm 50, every beast of the forest is his. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. It's all his. And he's graciously given it to us. And what ends up happening with us is we look at it and you go, he gave me all this. It's mine I'm not going to give you any of it. Okay, 10%, take it. Uh, this is all mine. Where's the gratitude? There's no gratitude then. The gratitude is, I see what he's done. Look at this amazing gift he's given me, and my response is to be gratitude. Now, does this mean we just stop, you know, buying things, we give it all away and become monks? Does this mean we never go on vacations, we never spend money on ourselves, but only on others? It could. But what this cannot mean is that we go, okay, God, there's your 10%. Now I'm going to come over here and I'm going to figure out what to do with the rest of my life, my time, my money, my possessions. See, that's wrong. God, you get this little bit over here. I'm going to take all the rest and decide. No, it needs to be, okay, God, here it is. Here's all of it. What do you want me to do? I think we're scared that he's going to say, give it all. But what does he say? I will provide for your every need. He'll provide the gold coin. We just need to trust him. I mean, think about it. Peter's going, oh man, I've never fished with a hook before. You know, I've never found a gold coin. I'd be a lot more into fishing. (laughs) Never found any of this. You know what? Hey guys, let's put some money together and let's see what we can do. No. Go and trust the Lord in this. Instead, we're to ask every single time, Lord, what do you want me to do? And if the Lord says, I don't care, do what you want. Awesome, go do what you want. You're obeying the Lord. If the Lord goes, you know what? I want you to give more than you can. And that doesn't make any sense, but I will provide. Then guess what? Go obey the Lord. There's nothing better. It's his funds, it's his time, it's his life. 
God cannot be an advisor. No, he needs to be the driver of our finances, of our talents, and of our possessions. It's all his. Now, does this mean that we need to look around at those around us and go, well, they're not giving as much time as I am or as much money or as many possessions? No. Your job is to obey the Lord with the stuff that you've been entrusted to. See, we're just stewards. Ephesians 2.10 says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we could walk in them. You know, every year when I was a teacher, I had seniors every year, and I would hear them say, oh, J-Rob, what, what does God want me to do with my life? And I would say, it's simple. And they'd go, it is? Where have you been? I'd say, it's simple. Serve him with all you are and hold nothing back. Give until it hurts, then give more. Give your time, your treasure, your very life to him, and you'll be right smack dab in the middle of where he wants you to be. This is the gratitude that we are called to give in response to the grace that he's extended. Let's be a thankful and gratitude full church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for that, that fish, Lord. That however you did it, Lord, you had it see a shiny thing and gobble it up or you just made it appear there. But Lord, through that simple lesson of the fish and the gold coin, you show how much you care about us. Even something as simple as a small temple tax, you care and you provide. Lord, help us to see clearly that we've been freed, Lord. We are not saved by what we do for you. We are not saved by giving a tithe of our time, of our possessions, of our money, or even more than that. Lord, we are saved because you saved us. You loved us because you loved us. We were dead in our sins and you loved us. So now, Lord, as we get that, as we see that, I, I pray that you would help it to well up in us with gratitude to give it all away. Help us to do that, Lord. Not because we're earning your love, but because you loved us. Help us to be full of gratitude and thankfulness. And Lord, be pleased with each of our sacrifices. In Jesus' name, amen.